It's 2018, and I'm back. Welcome to Exploring the Ancient Forest. More than 20 years ago, Australian death doom metal band Paramecium released their sophomore album Within the Ancient Forest. The album lyrics were based on the book Within the Ancient Forest, written by Andrew Tompkins, the band's vocalist and bassist. In this podcast, we celebrate and explore the plot, the context, and the symbolic significance of the story behind this piece of classic doom metal history. So here we are again, um, back after a prolonged winter break, and um, I'm about to begin, well I won't call it a second season, uh, but maybe a second series of recordings, and um, just first off, I don't really know how frequent these will be particularly because you know I don't have I don't have a set order this time around. So the first 5 episodes were just basically me reading out my lyrical analysis um you know in order uh and that certainly will not be given in uh this and the next few episodes. So this episode and the next few episodes will probably be much more standalone uh, about a certain topic or about a certain aspect of within the ancient forest or something related to that rather than being chronological so that you have to listen to them in a certain order. So this episode is going to focus on Joseph Campbell and Joseph Campbell's um, famous hero's journey and basically how we can take that pattern, that, that blueprint for every story and apply it to something like Within the Ancient Forest. Okay, but before we take off, here's a bit of background info on Joseph Campbell. He lived from 1904 to 1987, and he was a mythologist who worked in comparative mythology and comparative religion. That is, you know, comparing all of the myths, all of the stories, fairy tales, and religions around the world. And the book of his that most people know is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and was originally released in 1949, even though I think there are uh, several editions, actually, of that book, which he kept reworking. And um, in this book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, it's all about... The hero's journey. You might have heard that before. Um, so the archetypal hero and what the what the hero does um, in basically in stories around the world. So the the whole idea basically is that a lot of the stories that have been told are being told, have always been told, in a lot of cultures around the world have a lot in common. And they have more in common than what you would think. So I would have thought maybe the fact that they all have a beginning, 
and a sort of <laughs> middle part where you're not sure how it's going to turn out, but then there's a there's an ending. Okay, but that's not that that's not all. There's there's actually stuff that you know heroes or or main characters. Hero just basically means main character. So um, there's always stuff that main characters in stories typically do. You know places they go to, things that happen to them in a certain order. Uh, you know how they how they get what they set out uh, to find or how they don't get it, and what happens then. And so there's always certain things that um, heroes' stories have in common. And that's what he means by uh, the hero with a thousand faces, or uh, the hero's journey, basically. So yeah, let's get into Joseph Campbell's theory a little bit here, and directly see um, where we can find the hero's journey in Within the Ancient Forest. So in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell at first describes the hero's journey uh, in about 250 pages. So that's chapter, uh, that's part one. The whole book has two parts. Part one is called The Adventure of the Hero. And in part one you have chapter one, departure, chapter two, initiation, chapter three, return. And then chapter four, is very very short only a few pages in length and it's called the keys and this is really my favorite part of the book because this is where he basically just sums up the whole you know mythological round so what all stories have in common uh, in a nutshell and he begins this little mini chapter the keys uh, which is only about six or seven pages long um, he begins that with a with an incredibly short and incredibly dense summary of only about one page. So this is really the, the nut in the nutshell, so to speak. And before we do anything else, I'd like to just read that out right now. This also serves as kind of a bridge uh, from the last few episodes to this episode because... Um, the last few episodes were basically me reading out stuff that I'd written, and so they had this very wordy and and written uh, character about them. Uh, just, so just to um, continue along that line a little bit and also uh, read something that's very, very good <laughs> for a change. Um, one thing about this, there's a lot of parentheses. So he says something, and then there's certain words that he adds in parentheses, sort of names that he gives these phenomena. So I think what I'll, what I'll do now is read it out two times, one time with the parentheses, but because that's a bit, you know, that sort of splits the text up a little bit and makes it harder to follow um, afterwards, I'll just read through sort of the nutshell again without the parentheses. So that should really, really be condensed then. Okay, but first... Um, with a parenthesis, you'll you'll notice uh, what I mean by that. So this is his summary of summaries of what happens in a nutshell in every story, uh, the hero's journey. The mythological hero, setting forth from his common day hut or castle, is lured, carried away, or else voluntarily proceeds to the threshold of adventure. There he encounters a shadow presence that guards the passage. The hero may defeat 
or conciliate this power and go alive into the kingdom of the dark, in parentheses, brother battle, dragon battle, offering, charm, or be slain by the opponent and descend in death, in parentheses, dismemberment, crucifixion. Beyond the threshold, then, the hero journeys through a world of unfamiliar yet strangely intimate forces, some of which severely threaten him, in parentheses, tests, some of which give magical aid, in parentheses, helpers. When he arrives at the nadir, that's the lowest point, of the mythological round, he undergoes a supreme ordeal and gains his reward. The triumph may be represented as the hero's sexual union with the goddess mother of the world, in parentheses, sacred marriage, his recognition by the father creator, in parentheses, father atonement, his own divinization, it's becoming a god, uh, in parentheses, apotheosis, or again, if the powers have remained unfriendly to him, his theft of the boon he came to gain in parentheses, bride theft, fire theft. Intrinsically, it is an expansion of consciousness and therewith of being, in parentheses, illumination, transfiguration, freedom. The final work is that of the return. If the powers have blessed the hero, he now sets forth under their protection, in parentheses, emissary. If not, he flees and is pursued, in parentheses, transformation fight, obstacle fight. At the return threshold, the transcendental powers must remain behind. The hero re-emerges from the kingdom of dread, in parentheses, return, resurrection. The boon that he brings restores the world, in parentheses, elixir. Okay, that was it, and as I promised... Now I'm going to read the same text again. By the way, there's also a diagram at the beginning of the text that obviously I can't read out to you because it's a diagram where all of these uh, words that you just heard um, in parentheses after all of the sentences are basically placed graphically uh, onto a certain spot in the diagram. But now I'm going to just read it out so that it sounds a bit more like a text, actually. So this is what happens. This is sort of the gist of the stories, um, according to Joseph uh, Campbell, of um, the mythological stories. The mythological hero setting forth from his common day hut or castle is lured, carried away, or else voluntarily proceeds to the threshold of adventure. There he encounters a shadow presence that guards the passage. The hero may defeat or conciliate this power and go alive into the kingdom of the dark or be slain by the opponent and descend in death. Beyond the threshold, then, the hero journeys through a world of unfamiliar yet strangely intimate forces, some of which severely threaten him, some of which give magical aid. When he arrives at the nadir of the mythological round, he undergoes a supreme ordeal and gains his reward. The triumph may be represented as the hero's sexual union with the goddess mother of the world, his recognition by the father creator, his own divinization, or again, if the powers have remained unfriendly to him, his theft of the boon he came to gain. Intrinsically, it is an expansion of consciousness and therewith of being. 
The final work is that of the return. If the powers have blessed the hero, he now sets forth under their protection. If not, he flees and is pursued. At the return threshold, the transcendental powers must remain behind. The hero re-emerges from the kingdom of dread. The boon that he brings restores the world. So, um, when I read this recently, I thought, hey, that's a summary of Within the Ancient Forest, right? Uh, I mean, such a perfect summary. Um, there are a few things, maybe, that came to mind as being different, um, and or that didn't quite line up or quite match with Within the Ancient Forest. For example, the fact that denial is sent, actually, and isn't lured or carried away into the other world. Uh, yeah, so there's a few things. The more I thought of it, the more I sort of came to the conclusion that, um, and now I'm taking my own written notes here, by the way, uh, the more I came to the conclusion that it's actually not one, but three circles or cycles in uh, within the ancient forest. Uh, three of these mythological rounds uh, that we can find. Or at least three. I mean, these are the, these are the three that immediately came to mind that I was aware of that uh, sort of happened in the story. Um, and let me just walk you through these three um, while we're at it. So <laughs> if you've been listening this far, uh, I think you will want me to walk you through. So um, number one, the first uh, mythological round that I detect in Within the Ancient Forest is basically the one that spans the entire book. Where... We begin, or denial begins at the monastery, at the mountain monastery, so to speak, uh, where he's sort of interested but doubtful about what he's going to find in the world. Then the crossing, the threshold moment, is where he actually goes into the ancient forest. And everything else that happens is basically within that first cycle that I'm talking about right now. Obviously, um... He re-emerges quite literally uh, at the end of that cycle from a pool and re-enters uh, sort of the world that he's more used to, um, equipped with some special powers and, you know, being sent at the end of the tale. He himself has changed, his name has changed. So that's the first mythological round uh, that I would say takes place within the ancient forest. And that's basically just the whole story. What else is there, however? Because not everything within the story now sort of lines up in this linear fashion. That's why we need to include two more of these uh, cycles that um, are completed um, while denial is within the ancient forest. So while he is uh, basically um, at the nadir of the first cycle. So... Um, if you imagine this graphically, right? Imagine there's a uh, a circle. So we, we begin at the top. Uh, you might imagine a clock, maybe. Um, so you begin at the top, at the number twelve, and then um, obviously the uh, hands go round. And as soon as we reach sort of the bottom, so where the number six would be on the clock, that's when all of a sudden we see there's a there's a second and a third uh, circle there, and we sort of branch off into those before re-entering the big circle um, 
towards the end. Okay, so the second and third uh, cycles or mythological rounds are these. The second one, I would say, begins with denial already in the forest and his falcon free will dying all of a sudden. So this is what, what lures him into, uh, into the beginning of, of the second sort of of the adventure within the adventure where he goes into the fossilized, uh, the, the petrified part of the forest. And he re-emerges from that. Well, first of all, there is Free Will's death and Free Will's resurrection that sort of uh, frame this whole um, petrified forest episode. And the way he gets back, uh, he returns from that little mini journey with the sword, right? And quite literally with a new consciousness, um, uh, to use Joseph Campbell's word. And then the third round is, uh, or the third little adventure within the adventure is what happens as he runs off. Uh, so he's, uh, Denial and, and, and Destiny are together, and he runs off from her in disappointment, in a rage, in a fit, whatever, and um, goes into the ground, right? So that's the underground adventure. He goes into that cave where he meets Desire. So those are basically the three mythological cycles that I would want to propose are here in the text. And let me just walk you through them one more time, uh, this time taking a little bit more time and fleshing out the details a little bit. And uh, so that we can sort of also reconnect what I just said about the three cycles uh, a bit more with what Joseph Campbell says, actually. So the first cycle, as I said, the whole story, denial, begins at the library in the mountains, never wanting to leave them, actually and returns basically as devout with his new name, um, re-emerging from the forest pool and sort of being sent into all the world uh, by King Garen. Here I, I already said earlier, um, the main thing for me where I sort of struggled was, wait a second, he's not really uh, dragged or invited into the other world per se, he's sent actually. So he's, he's being sent by his teacher. And that seems to be a variation that is not really uh, present here in Joseph Campbell's uh, sort of dumbed down, in a nutshell, version of the mythological story. Nevertheless, well, it is a variation of that, of course. I mean, the teacher himself has undergone a journey like that. So in a way, it's like, it's like being beckoned into the story uh, or being called into the different world. Um, but also dragged there because he doesn't really have a choice, right? He sort of also wants to do what his, what his teacher tells him to. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of like the mixture of those two things, of, of the two possibilities of either being invited or, or beckoned um, or being uh, forced into the other world. Um, I think both are sort of half true for that. Uh, the threshold, yeah, there's a big threshold moment, right? Uh, I would say the first uh, four chapters or so of the book really describe this uh, crossing, this first crossing of the of the threshold. Um, there is a bit of a struggle before he actually emerges first, like within himself, like looking to find another way into the forest until he realizes, no, there is only this path that he can take. Then there's the whole thing with uh, his horse, Descartes, right? The whole dream episode where it's kind of like Descartes is this threshold guardian there, quite literally, telling him, you can't go here, you can't stay here, you got to return, um, at least telling him that in his dream. Um, so there is a very interesting little um, 
what Joseph Campbell uh, mentioned there. What did he call it? Uh, the hero may defeat or conciliate this power and go alive. Uh, so that would then uh, go alive into the kingdom of the dark. That would be the brother battle, dragon battle, uh, something like that. Yeah, simply because the horse uh, doesn't really agree with him. Then the whole crossing of the pool uh, in chapter 5, this whole leap of faith that he has to take without his horse in the boat at nighttime under the moon, right? That whole, I mean, that whole transition there. Actually, there's this is a big idea uh, in Joseph Campbell. It's called the night sea journey. Um, it's kind of like this very prototypical image of uh, somebody leaving everything behind and uh, taking this leap into the dark. Then the fact that uh, as soon as he arrives in, well, on the other side of the threshold, in the wild, so to speak, it doesn't take long before he meets someone who is strangely familiar, although unfamiliar, uh, so strangely intimate, uh, destiny, a magical aid. So that would be the terminology there. And that's, I think, really clear. Then, as I said, the nadir, the, the, the lowest point of this um, first cycle is basically everything that happens in the rest of the book, which is why I say they branch off into two different cycles. So let's return to the very, or let's let's move on to the very end of the story where we can say that this first cycle is brought to a close. Um, the first cycle, yeah, we have death and resurrection quite literally, or almost literally, um, as he walks into the pool in the throne room and re-emerges from the forest pool. Um, it's a kind of baptism and all of these words would also be used by Joseph Campbell. This is This is really... Um, again, very prototypical, I think, what you would find in a hero's journey. And what's the elixir? So what does he, what does he bring back? Um, as Campbell says, the boon he brings restores the world. What is it, actually? Well, and I, I thought about this quite a bit. We begin with denial, thinking that the whole story of Garen and so on, and these, these old stories, ancient stories about dragons and so on, are interesting but not really factual not real and so the elixir that he brings basically i would say is just quite simply the knowledge that garen is real and that you can actually meet garen that you can sort of go into that story um that's it basically that's that that's what it's about which kind of sets this whole um book onto a very intellectual plane in a way onto a very knowledge based plane right so he's he's sitting in his library trying to find out stuff but then he knows okay or his teacher tells him no you gotta go on a journey for yourself and at the end he returns from the journey and basically just has this experience has this knowledge it does give the whole book a very mental based uh, thinking based ring to it Okay, that's the first, uh, that's, I think, everything I wanted to uh, say about the first round. Of course, everything else is nested within the first cycle, so he brings all of the boons, obviously the sword, uh, which uh, would be a gift, actually, in um, Joseph Campbell's terminology. Uh, the tree, which has something to do with fire. Remember, there was something about fire theft. And also Garen, which is, well, who is kind of a father figure. Um, so he brings all of that with him, of course, in a way, or as experiences, he brings that with him. Um, moving on to the second cycle, 
where denial uh, enters the petrified part of the forest and re-emerges with the sword. So here we have a threshold moment. This time he's forced, I would say, not really beckoned in a positive way. He's really pushed into this fossilized forest simply by the fact that his beloved falcon seems to die uh, in midair and falls into this uh, petrified forest. And so he runs after his dying falcon. It's a place of death. A There's a real struggle that takes place there. So this really is the kingdom of the dark or the kingdom of dread, as Joseph Campbell calls it. Um, there's some digging that goes on. So this quite literally he at some yeah, well, he, he gets sort of to the lowest point um, there. Uh, at least there is there is digging and, and hacking uh, involved in, in finding the sword. The sword is the ultimate boon, of course, in this episode. And also the fact that with the help of this boon, um, or maybe you can see it as a magical aid, because well, the ultimate boon is, of course, that he finds free will and that he um, resurrects free will with the help of the sword. He then re-emerges quite literally with a new awareness of what's around him, with a new consciousness. And, uh, I mean, even more literally, even more physically, with the sword, of course, that upon entering this uh, petrified forest, he had still believed to be a legend. Right? And now he's actually holding the physical sword in his hand. He's also stronger, so uh, the, the elixir is... Lots of stuff, right? The elixir is the sword, his new powers, his new consciousness, all of that. Um, the third cycle, which is kind of the last quarter or so of the book, is uh, all about... This one, really interestingly, I would say, is about denial and destiny uh, more than anything else. So it seems like he... he we begin with denial and destiny sort of together but sort of not because he's so frustrated with her and with all of her explanations and with the fact that the sword doesn't work the way he wants it to work, that he just runs off and leaves her behind. Um, the threshold moment here is entering into the cave, which obviously is a place of death. It stands for the grave. I mean, quite literally, he goes into the ground. Um, there's another struggle. This time it's really an internal struggle um, at the threshold here, and that's the bridge, right? Uh, so if you remember, as soon as he goes into the cave, um, very soon after that he meets Desire, and Desire is standing on the other side of a deep, dark chasm, and there's only one uh, bridge across this chasm. And he, at one point, quite literally stands on the bridge and struggles within himself to either return to destiny or to go to desire, right? So that's really a, a struggle at the at the threshold. Uh, the guardian of the threshold that he has to overcome, paradoxically, I guess, is destiny uh, that he has to leave behind, or maybe his desire to do the right thing or whatever that he has to sort of um, leave behind to actually follow uh, desire and go into the cave. Um, then that underground adventure right now, I mean, quite literally, I, I think I also say this in my lyrical analysis, this is really uh, now literally the lowest point um, of the story. Uh, in the cave at the very end, very uh, uh, farthest down, we find um, both a father figure, interestingly, because that was mentioned by Campbell. That was the um, 
father atonement thing, recognition by the father creator. And we find a bride figure, right? So sacred marriage, sexual union with the goddess mother. Um, even though she doesn't appear as a mother, really. Um, but definitely as a bride to him. Uh, this might be the hardest uh, bit to reconcile with uh, Joseph Campbell's mythology here. Because what happens? Is it really his recognition by a father figure? Is it really his marrying a bride? No, of course not, because they're both false, right? So I think we have to see the pattern behind the pattern here. I think that his boon, the boon that he gets, uh, that he steals or whatever, is actually the fact that he sees that they're false. Okay? So the bride that he finds is a false bride, and he notices this quite quickly, um, and the father figure quite obviously is false and uh, is sort of grinning down on him the whole time and um, doesn't really love him. I mean, we know that. Uh, and he seems to know it the whole time. It's just maybe the experience or the, the, the boon that he gets is sort of this... Um, for some reason, he needs to see and, and or feel for himself how false they really are this uh, false bride and this false father figure. Then, quite interestingly, we get something we haven't gotten yet in the other cycles, and that's what um, Joseph Campbell calls the obstacle fight. So this time, the dark powers that are in the underground world, um, in the, in the uh, kingdom of dread, uh, don't want to let him go, at least not easily, and they fight against him. Obstacle flight... Um, did I just say obstacle fight? Uh, both of them match here. So obstacle fight, obstacle flight. So there is uh, something he needs to do, even though ultimately he can fight those um, black masked warriors as much as he likes. Um, that probably wouldn't have gotten him out of the cave. So ultimately, of course, it's uh, the divine intervention uh, by destiny that saves him um, from out of that cave. Then, of course the long travel up the stairs, uh, up, up those steps after the door has appeared, um, is quite literally a uh, resurrection, um, way out of the grave, uh, mountain of purgatory kind of climb, I guess. And what's the elixir? What does he bring back from his underground adventure as he is reunited with destiny? Well, that's a good question to ask. He doesn't bring anything back. Um, physically. I guess the elixir is that he is now more willing to follow destiny, actually, that he's more, that he feels united with destiny once more, who is his actual soul bride. Um, but the way he got it is through contrasting her with desire. And that's, that's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a little bit weird here. So what is the elixir? Um, this is not a typical story. It's maybe a bit more on the psychological plane uh, than the other two. Okay, those have been my thoughts on Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces and especially his, in a nutshell, version um, of the hero's journey called Chapter 4, The Keys. Sorrow. My 
contemplating. Loving hours past. I spent my life anticipating. Sorrow. Thy cold embracing. Felt like love back then. But now I know that I was tasting sorrow. Sorrow. So, that was it for now. We could go a lot further from here. I mean, Joseph Campbell's approach includes psychology and whatnot. And by the way, um, it's a known fact that the first Star Wars movies were modeled on Joseph Campbell's approach on the hero's journey, uh, basically reverse-engineered from uh, the description, um, the bare backbone that I presented to you today, uh, which is kind of funny because George Lucas was basically doing things backwards, right? Working from the model and creating a story based on it. So Campbell's approach is about comparing stories and focusing what they all have in common. And in closing, I'd like to read to you a few sentences from the preface to the book, where he seems to respond to a kind of criticism. There are, of course, differences between the numerous mythologies and religions of mankind, but this is a book about the similarities. And once these are understood, the differences will be found to be much less great than is popularly and politically supposed. My hope is that a comparative elucidation may contribute to the perhaps not quite desperate cause of those forces that are working in the present world for unification, not in the name of some ecclesiastical or political empire, but in the sense of human mutual understanding. As we are told in the Vedas, truth is one, the sages speak of it by many names. And particularly that last quote uh, reminded me very much of the song that is sung towards the end of the story uh, when denial enters his baptismal pool. So that the fire uh, is always the same even though it um, appears in different guises. Yeah, so when you compare stories on this level, it somehow you feel like you're tapping into something deeper there, kind of like Jungian psychology, you know, um, coming close to like archetypes and, and things like that. By the way, a concept that I wanted to mention here that also uses the hero's journey, among other things, to uncover patterns in the four Gospels um, would be the book called Heart and Mind by Alexander Shia. That's Alexander S-H-A-I-A. And I think listeners of this podcast might be interested um, in that kind of thing, so applying the hero's journey and um, these kinds of patterns, uh, finding them uh, in the four Gospels. I thought some people might be interested in that. Right, so, and before I forget it, I also wanted to mention to you uh, the new My Silent Wake album. Uh, those of you who remember Ian Arkley was actually part of Paramecium. Um, he was the guitarist and pretty much wrote half of the music for uh, the third 
Paramecium CD, A Time to Mourn. And yeah, he's still very prolific. And particularly the newest uh, My Silent Wake album, There Was Death is the title. And it came out recently, just a few weeks ago. Um, and yeah, so stylistically it's pretty uh, related, I think, to um, classic death doom uh, metal. So you might want to give it a listen. It's really, really good. So that really concludes this episode. Many, many thanks to Christina for contributing vocals. Christina usually sings in projects that go by the names of Peter Engelnook and Pannon Melonkolikushok. Um, that was it for me. I'll talk to you soon.